I first met our guest in about the early 2000s or the late 1990s when he came out to South Africa to start a cider factory. Now John was, was born in Scotland but he worked in England most of his life and he has been to more than 83 countries where he's consulted and worked in the cider business. So if there's anybody that knows anything about cider, it's John Murray. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. So John, you came to South Africa to start or to build the factory for Bulma Ciders. Um, and that was next door to Bavaria Brow where I was working at the time. Yes, um, I'd been here and we had launched a cider for Bulmers uh, in the early 1980s. Oh really? But due to uh, pressure against apartheid, uh, the students in the UK were slinging bricks through supermarket windows that stopped Bulmers products because they owned a factory in South Africa which was down in Krabo, uh, adjoining Appletizer's plant. And I'd fought for years and years and years because us pulling out of South Africa at that point was a, a mistake for more than one reason and it certainly had no effect whatsoever on anything to do with apartheid. All it did was put uh, a lot of uh, people in the Krobo area out of jobs. Out of jobs, yeah. So I'd fought for many years to build a factory and I think I was becoming quite a pest to the uh, international division, having built factories, project managed the builds of factories in quite a few countries around the world by this time, I was becoming a pest because every year I kept having the same old argument over and over and over again with them, till in the end they said, well, you can go and build a dot dot dotting factory in South Africa if you want, um, but here's your budget. And it was not a particularly good budget. So um, Bavaria, uh, had an empty plot next door to them and a packing plant that was only running three days a week. So it made a lot of sense at that point to come to a deal with the Funk family um, and say, we'll build a fermentation and processing plant, but we'll build a pipe bridge across to you guys and we'll pump the cider over and pack it on your canning line and bottling line. Yeah, and for the listeners, that is on the Ben Skuman freeway as you, if you leave Joburg, um, just before you get to the Kriostorp intersection on the left-hand side, and, and the buildings are still there. The, the brewery has been decommissioned, I think, but the cider factory is still there, hey? The cider factory is still there and uh, is still going strong producing cider. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about cider in the UK. I, I mean, for me, it's really interesting to understand the culture of cider drinking because we, I mean, you know, we only drink it out of a clear bottle, swig it away, and I don't think it's real cider, is it? Uh, it's not traditional cider, and then you do stupid things like sticking a slice of lemon in it, you know, <laughs> which is real sacrilege. It's like, like putting uh, Coke into fine whiskey, you know. It's not yeah. on... Uh, but yeah, cider's got a very, very long history. Sorry, that was my phone. Cider's got a very long, long history. Um, goes way, way back before there were anything recorded. But uh, one of the earliest sort of credible uh, records of cider uh, was in the fourth century, when obviously the Romans had invaded uh, England and uh, mainly Londinium and um, Palladius made a comment that he preferred Perry 
to cider. Uh, Perry, of course, being exactly the same product made from pears, and most cider makers make Perry and make pears. Um, and then in 1216, uh, there was a somewhat of a disaster with, with cider in that King John, who was known as a glutton, uh, managed to find that he could get sailing ships to bring over to the UK um, peaches from France. Uh, and being the glutton that he was, he whatever he could find new, he would hold a big banquet and he would eat most of it himself. And it is recorded in 1216 that he died from a surfeit of peaches and new cider. Now what that means, you remember, this was pre-pasteurization, so cider was being drunk, still fermenting. And if you eat a large quantity of peaches, you're consuming a large quantity of sugar. If you then drink still fermenting cider, the inevitable large volumes of gas is produced and his intestines ruptured. Wow. <laughs> Another interesting one was in the 14th century when a cleric, uh, William of Shoreham, uh, banned the use of cider for baptizing babies. Uh, you have to remember in those days, particularly in the cities, the water was terrible, uh, totally unhealthy, and they used to get a lot of eye infections on babies from the cross being put on their foreheads. And most churches had worked out that, in fact, if you use dry cider, um, they didn't get the infections. But William of Shoreham, in his diocesan area, he decided that this was the reason why so many men got drunk, was because the alcohol had first entered their brain through the cider being put on it during baptism. <laughs> and cider, is, are the apples planted in many regions of the UK? Mainly in two regions, um, Herefordshire and Worcestershire over on the, towards the Welsh boundary and obviously also down in Devon. There are uh, apples also grown in Kent, um, but the climate is not so good for cider apples there. You have to remember that cider apples, which is not what is used here in South Africa, but cider apples themselves are very small, low, <coughs> low acidity, uh, but very high in tannin. Uh, if you can imagine chewing the, the skin of a, a, a red grape, you get that very astringent. Uh, and that's what gives English-style cider its, its astringency. It comes from the cider apples. Uh, these days, obviously, um, the, the, ciders the, the apples used for cider making mainly come from the standard fruit crop. Um, outside of the UK, apart from northern France, where cider apples are grown for, for making cider from to turn into calvados, then um, the only real place that cider apples is grown is in those two regions. And, for example, Bulmers um, presses up to 2,000 tonnes a day through the, through the pressing season, and they only grow cider apples. Um, the old varieties of cider apples had some lovely names these days we have michelin and things like that and they have much more modern names but some of the old names used were things like uh, they were very descriptive names there were things like cider lady's finger which is a, a cider apple that is sort of long and thin it's quite a strange looking thing and my favorite is probably slack mcgirdle uh -huh. and nothing changes 
Uh, Slackma girdle was an old variety, still grown um, purely is as a um, museum piece in the in the the museum orchards, uh, but it was very high in sugar, so therefore produced a lot of alcohol, and was known to. Uh, loosen the uh, temperament of young ladies very easily. <laughs> so nothing changes. It's no different from spirit coolers these days. <laughs> yeah. And, and the process of making cider, is it, is it really simple? The process, is obviously, is nothing like... Bro- traditionally. Like, 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 yeah, traditionally is, is, is... Well, traditionally and today, is nothing like brewing. Mm-hmm. So we don't go through that conversion process. It's more akin to winemaking. But because of the different... Um, items in the fruit, the process has to be controlled differently. Um, these day, the, the big changes obviously are these days the use of things like pasteurization and reverse osmosis and all the modern technologies are in place which weren't there to the original uh, farm cider makers. Mm. And I mean you said earlier traditionally um, there would be a cider maker in, in a farming community and he'd go to all the different farms and make the cider for the farmers? Yeah, I mean the farms had made their own cider because obviously they had the fruit. Now they were very competent at making cider vinegar generally. Yeah. Uh, no ideas of hygiene or other issues. So large portions of the cider at that point turned to cider vinegar. Uh, the cider was just consumed on the farm or very, very close to it. And in fact, some farm workers were paid a portion of their wages in cider. But those more skilled became itinerant cider makers. And what they did was they set up on the backs of carts pulled by horses. They set up their own presses, mills, uh, and they would then travel from farm to farm because the farmer could give them the apples and actually get good quality cider from it rather than the cider vinegar that he made. And, and how he was paid was he would estimate the amount of fruit on the farm and he would take 10% of his own barrels along. And the fruit was pressed, he turned it into the cider, 10% of that went into his own barrels and became his own, his own property. Now he couldn't sell that. Uh, cider, uh, the itinerant cider makers in those days had a circle of probably around about 30 kilometers from where they were based. Um, So the first sort of commercial sales was then these guys that had barns full of dry cider and no customers for it locally because they were all either making their own or they could get plenty, started shipping it by horse and cart into Birmingham and London. Mm -hmm. So it's the first cider sales guys were a long time ago. Yeah. (coughs) And if it was... (coughs) If it was in a barrel, did they just tap it off the barrel? Yes. You've got to remember that the cider was fermented to dryness mm-hmm. because that was the only way of preserving it. Um, and it would last through the rest of the year if it had been made properly and was clean and didn't have any acetic bacteria in it to turn it into vinegar. So it just went into the barrel, a bit like a, a cask beer would. You turn the barrel on its side, you let the yeast settle to the bottom, you broach it with a tap in it and you draw it off just like you would say a, a cask beer, a, a, a traditional ale cask beer and would that I mean are there any cider makers that are going back to that traditional way there are yes um, the market is very very small yeah. because obviously they have two major problems firstly they can only make cider once a year because they can only make it when the fruit's coming in um, and secondly the the shelf life of it 
um, is not so good because they are hit with the point that people want to buy it actually with its natural fizz still fermenting. Mm. So the, the, the halfway stage was the products like Pomaine that was sold by Bulmers that were Method Champenoise and still had the yeast in them. Those products have, have died away these days. Um, and there are a number of, of farm cider makers who, who are making, um, but most of them have had to move to the fact that they send part of their fruit off for concentrating and turning into apple concentrate because they've got to make all year round. And it's a salesman's nightmare working for a small cider maker. Uh, you have to tell your boss how much you're going to sell in the next 14 months because you've got to have a little bit of overlap and the other thing with with ciders um the cider is a slightly different market to to wines it's perfectly acceptable to be able to say this particular i won't mention any names but this particular wine from let's say stellenbosch from 2006 was excellent the 2007 wasn't quite so good the 2008 will command a higher price cider is in the lad the long alcoholic market drink market and has to taste the same every single time. The brand you buy, it's like buying your beer, it's got to be the same every time. So your problem with making once a year is you've also got the maturation of that product. You've also got a new crop of fruit coming in. So when the new crop comes in, the flavor changes because it had different conditions. And also what you've been selling last week was 12 months old. Yeah. And, but nowadays everything is made from fruit concentrate. Virtually all is made from fruit concentrates yeah. now. It allows you to make all year round. Um, it's a very simple process. Uh, the apple suppressed as normal. Uh, then the water is driven off it. When you drive off the water, you also drive off the esters, which are the aroma components. Those come off because they're very volatile. Those come off and are, are saved and drummed and can go back into the product afterwards. You've driven off the water at... 70 bricks, 72 bricks. It's a stable product that could be held in tanks all year round. And you need one seventh of the storage space. And you add the water back in when you come to ferment it. So in South Africa, where would, well, obviously the, the apple region is Algon. Is that where they also make concentrate? Yes, yes. I mean, uh, there are several concentrate producers. And in fact, uh, AFP, Associated Fruit Processors, uh, who are now on the appetizer site and was part of appetizer at one point, they actually utilize for part of their storage the uh, tanks that were my cider making tanks <laughs> at that time. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all in the Cape. The climate has to be right. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next, say, 30, 40 years. I, I deal with uh, a friend of mine is a citrus producer down in the Cape and I speak to some of the winemakers, and climate change is something that may well force them into, into other regions. So is, and do they produce enough apples in, in Algon to, to make all that Savannah and Hunters? Oh yes, yeah. You have so to remember that cider in South Africa is not made from cider apples. It's yeah. made from standard uh, fruit. Now the, you can go anywhere in the world and you can be proud of, you see Cape fruit on a supermarket shelf anywhere in the world, the grading standards are much better than anywhere else in the world. They have to have that perfect fruit sitting on the shelves to command the price of shipping from South Africa. 
So there are large quantities coming from the packing sheds of oversize, undersize, ones where a leaf has been against the fruit and it's got a mark on it, or too, or too many apples were bunched too close together and there's unripe patches on them slightly, they don't look quite right. Um, all that fruit goes for, for concentrate production. Mm. And let's go back to, to H.P. Bulmers. You worked there for many years. Yes, I, <laughs> I was working for a government research laboratory uh, uh, on, actually on glasshouse crop products <laughs> in the south of England. Uh, and uh, we lost our grant and I was looking for a job. And uh, I was offered a job to fill in for six months uh, in the analytical laboratory of Bulmers in 1972 uh, for a lady that was going to go on to an extended maternity leave. Well, I'm pleased to say she did have her baby, she, I, but I, I was still there over 40 years later. 40 years, yeah. And was Bulmers the biggest cider company in the UK? Bulmers was the largest cider company in the world. In the world. By, by quite a large margin, uh, followed by Taunton from Devon, uh, and then a long, 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 long away before any of the other companies. Mm. So I remember, I think it was in 2000 or, or something like that, uh, I went to Hereford with Rainer Funk, and uh, they had invited us to, to go and see the plant, and we stayed in this beautiful manor house. Um, it certainly, everything was done over the top there. Oh, Bulmers was a little bit known for that. Yeah, where you would have stayed was, in fact, one of the old family homes. You'd okay. stayed in Long Meadow, I expect, yes. uh, which was used as a as a overseas guest uh, guest house. But yeah, Bulmers went over the top on a lot of things. Uh, remember, it was a predominantly family-owned company. They owned fifty-two percent of the company. Their great-grandfather had set up the company. So there was a very much a, a family thing, not only among the family, but among the people who worked there. Mm. A large percentages of husbands and wives, grandparents, gr grandchildren, all worked there. I mean, pretty well if you had a child you could, and you worked there, you could be sure they'd find a job for them. Um, our boomers went over the top and we had our own Rolls Royce. We had our own steam engine. Uh, the George used to go towing uh, railway carriages uh, around the country, including Winston Churchill's carriage and one of the ex-royal coaches. And so we had our own huge big steam engine and other steam engines on site. And yeah, we, we, uh, Bulmers was known as a company to work hard and play hard. Because uh -huh. I can, I mean, for us it was um, really, we were young South Africans in England and we served by a butler in, in Longmeadow. It was, it was certainly an experience. We had, uh, yes, the butler who was there uh, used to play up his role quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I remember us bringing over from China the um, CEO of a large Chinese brewery, and he was also the mayor of Shufu. Uh, and uh, he was so amazed by this guy going round, and he'd seen some old black and white film uh, I think a Laurel and Hardy film or something like that with the butler going round and this guy used to just play it up and creep around quietly and then suddenly come up behind guests and go, your drinks are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then another highlight for us was when when you opened your factory 
and we were invited to this fancy opening and there was Prince Philip. Yes, that was quite an interesting How day. How did you manage to get him there? <laughs> well, it was quite an interesting little story. Um, the Bulmer family and Bulmers had a very close connection with the royal family. Uh, in fact, the first visit, uh, official visit to any commercial premises done by the Queen and Prince Philip when, after they married was actually to the Bulmer factory. And um, he was so interested in it that he came back on a private visit himself and spent two days there, uh, two weeks later, because he, the culture of how the staff worked was something that amazed him because he was saying, everybody says, this is my factory, not this is the boss's factory. Yeah. And he came back. So I put an application in, um, a little bit tongue in cheek, having had the history of why we weren't in South Africa at one point, uh, to see if Prince Philip would come out. Now, I'm also a serving brother of the Order of St. John. Now, when um, the hosts are put forward, they're not only put forward to the London Metropolitan Police, but they're also put forward to the Queen and Prince Philip to have a look down the list and see if there's anybody of interest. And my grandfather knew the Queen Mother very well as well. And um, back came a request from, uh, direct from the palace, okay, from some clerk in the palace. <laughs> uh, Prince Philip has noticed that you're a member of the Royal Order of St. John. He has a huge favor to ask of you. So having said yes immediately, and then she said, but I have not told you what it is yet. Uh, it was the prince will be coming out. Uh, we want to change your date that we were looking at and bring it forward to the 11th of November. So I immediately said, hey, hang on, <laughs> big problem there. That's Armistice Day. Prince Philip will be with the Queen at the Cenotaph in London. And she said, no, you have to keep this totally secret at the moment. But uh, the Queen is going to come to South Africa as it's now an acceptable place for her to come to again. The Queen is going to come to South Africa and lay the wreath at the Cenotaph in Pretoria. So I said, okay, fine, what sort of time in the afternoon or is it going to be early in the morning? And they said, no, 11 o'clock. At that point, I was informed that for the first time ever, the Prince Philip was not going to be with the Queen on laying the wreath. And because he'd spotted I was a member of the Royal Order of St. John, his request was that for once he was not going to be in a fancy uniform, standing to attention in front of the world's press could I find a quiet room at 11 o'clock where himself, myself, his bodyguard, uh, the uh, British ambassador to South Africa and um, a bodyguard from the presidential, South African presidential squad would be uh, where he could for once go and sit down and be a person, not a figurehead. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, you know, I lost people in the war. And of course, famously, with IRA issues, he lost his uncle later on, and all of that sort of goes together. And so we arranged uh, that he arrived about uh, quarter to 11. There was a little bit of the usual pressing of flesh with cabinet ministers and uh, mayors and whatever else. Um, and then at uh, 5 to uh, 11, Martin Ryman, who you, you may well remember, took over outside and Prince Philip and I went to a quiet room where he was Philip for a, for, a, for a little while rather than 
being centre of attention. And it was very nice to be able to do it for him. To this day, it's actually still quite emotional for me um, that he was in a difficult position of actually having to put on a different face yeah. in public from what he was actually thinking at that point. And he was an opportunity for him actually to be himself. And I thought it was, uh, it was nice that I was able to help him out with that. Yeah. And on that day, you gave us some mugs or some glasses. Can you remember that? I've still got mine, yes. <laughs> yes, we did, a, we did a special brew, uh, which we handed out to guests. Obviously, what happened was the moment that it was released to the press that Prince Philip wasn't going to be with the Queen, this was a first since they'd ever been married, half the world's press wanted to be there and we had to yeah. actually get a syndicate press company to do the filming for everybody, otherwise we'd have been swamped. And um, half of the cabinet wanted to be there and everything else as well. And um, we decided that we would do a, a special brew um, and have it as a, a commemorative brew. And a great cost, it was packed in fancy little green boxes with gold yeah. crests on it. And a, a glass was also done, a glass and, and a bottle of it. And I still have mine still on my shelf. Yeah. And actually, it went back to the UK uh, with me. And in 2000, it came back here again. <laughs> And I won't open it ever. <laughs> <laughs> and so, how did the the South African business? How did it go? I can remember we bought over the brands from Gilby's, so it was Hardy's and Crossbow. Yes. And I think the biggest mistake that was made was that I think they were selling fifty thousand cases a month, and what we didn't realise is that they had twenty five thousand customers. So every customer only bought two cases. And we tried to sell 50,000 cases into one customer. Yeah, I think that was, that was part of the problem. Um, the reason Gilby's were involved was in the previous run, Bulmers didn't have a distribution system here. So uh, Gilby's had done the sales and marketing and distribution of the product throughout South Africa at that point. So we had a, a good connection with Gilby's at that was point. Was there a relationship with Gilby's? Obviously also a UK company? Uh, the relationship was actually mainly all from this end. It had okay. been a sort of symbiotic thing. We've got a product, you've got trucks that have got spare space on it. Um, yeah, well, le left hand shakes the right hand, washes the right hand. So that, that history was there already. So we already had contacts and Gilby's had known that I'd been fighting and fighting and fighting for it. So although Bulmers had pulled out, Gilby's uh, didn't have a bad feeling with, with Bulmers. And when we started to come out, the first thing we, we thought about was obviously is one of the, one of his route to market. And we spoke to Gilby's at the time. And you may remember there was a plant in Mid Midrand there. Uh, now Gilby's had a plant there which was making, making some cider and had a a big, big issue because it was adjoining the township and their insurance rates were going sky high because liquor products being produced next to a township. So they were actually going to pull out of that market and finish up with having only three years beforehand put in all brand new fermenters with large fermenters that were far too big for anything that they were doing in their own product range. And when they'd moved in on that site, they'd been given certain uh, benefits, shall we say, from the local municipality of you employ these number of people on this site for so many years and you won't pay local rates and taxes and things. It's a normal practice. 
quite often done to attract them to a certain area. So they all had a problem, they were going to have to retrench a lot of staff. Now some staff could move down to the other factory, but nowhere near all of them. At that point, obviously, I was also going to be looking for training up staff to do cider making. Now here were some staff um, that had some experience in cider making. Uh, so we came to a deal with them, we bought the fermenters, that so gave me the base for it. Um, and in fact, the budget I was given for the build was, was, as I mentioned earlier on, was rather small because it was basically put your money, we'll put our money where your mouth is. And your <laughs> mouth's been going on about this, here's your budget. And it was quite a bit below what I would normally have spent on a factory that size. So um, we, we started off, off there. Um, and there was obviously the other brands were there. There was Crossbow and Hardy's were there as well. And obviously we launched Strongbow, Woodpecker into the market. Um, and then with the sort of symbiosis that was going on, Crossbow came on the market. Now Crossbow in those days obviously had a very much a different target market from, from the other products. Crossbow was known for its advertising of um, black boxing. So very much had a very quite aggressive uh, black boxing heritage. So the, it filled a different gap in the products. And then Hardy's was aimed a little bit more at somewhere that was, uh, because we added a little bit of ginger and a little bit of lemon to it. So it was um, into that middle market of sometimes the men, but also could be drunk quite happily by the women. Okay. And, and that didn't really work. In South Africa, it didn't really work in South Africa um, because of route to market. I guess route to market, I think, was the main thing, uh, and some quite legal but extremely dirty tricks played on us by a couple of very large companies in the trade. Because most of the cider is made by Distel here. Yes, um, Gilby's doesn't do any cider anymore. No, no. Okay, and. Distel is, uh, I mean, also they've, they've done quite well internationally with the with the Savannah, haven't they? I believe they have done quite well. I couldn't put a figure to the yeah. volumes on that, but yeah, they've got an export market for it, yes. Uh, but in the export market, of course, they're up against also quite a lot of other big players from around Europe as well. So, I mean, even here you go into, into one of the liquor cities here, just up the road from me here, and you'll see... Ciders imported from Scandinavia sitting yeah. on the shelf. Um, and the difference between the Scandinavian, like Recordelic and what is the other brand? Um, how do how do they how are they different to what you make? Well, <laughs> this is where I have a conflict of interest, and I often say to people one of the products that I absolutely hated that the customers once wanted and I thought was disgusting, but made it to exactly what they wanted, was a huge success in Australia. Uh, sometimes you have to make what the market wants, not necessarily what you want to make yourself. <laughs> um, these flavoured products, uh, and I mean, to be honest, uh, Bulmer's had a connection with certain Scandinavian companies, and I did some cider making training in Scandinavia, okay. and uh, that partnership fell away. Um, But the, the flavoured ciders very much started with um, when Bulmers took over a company called Stassen uh, in Obel in Belgium, a family-owned cider company. And 
they were already making ciders with a various fruit, fruit flavors as well rather than the traditional ciders where generally you have a, a strong drive for the men and a, a medium sweet for the women at a lower alcohol they were already doing the fruit flavored ciders basically because that's the taste in Belgium they were so used to the Belgian beers where I, you can tell me I don't know the percentage but a reasonably large percentage of Belgian beers are fruit flavored yeah. I don't know what the percentage is no, but no. it's it's a sizable bit of the market and they'd done the same thing with cider and cider being a very cyclical product in that uh, generally one generation doesn't necessarily want to drink what their father drank um, one of the things that hit ciders quite hard at one point was the rise of spirit coolers um, easy drinking flavored tastes like lemonades and pops and various other things and in fact I made quite a few of those myself over the years um, they had taken over that a portion of that cider market purely on the fact that this is something different and cider makers generally right throughout the world had relied on the fact of history and heritage this yeah. is what we've always made this is what we always will make you will like what we what we make or else um, and they hadn't kept up with marketing they hadn't kept it there i mean 1975 or thereabouts bulmers went through a massive growth um the huge cider revival campaign went on and for six years we had around about 30 percent growth every single year and we were already the largest cider maker in the in the country or in the world at that point and um instead of planning for cost savings and all the things that the accountants were pushing on the whole business for five years was how the hell can we get more volume out more volume out more volume out we need to plant more trees we've only got five thousand acres of trees we need more planted take on more contractors um that that happened and then along came the spirit coolers and they pinched a bit of that market now because of the obel thing boomers at that point spotted here's a way we can sit with cider but also attract a new market each time round and started with the flavoured ciders which I mean are not good ciders from my point of view as a traditional volume cider maker but um, that's what the market wants at this time um, as a market matures I'd put money on it the people that are drinking the flavoured ciders now in another five years will be tasting unflavored ciders from single varieties uh, vintage ciders manufactured in different ways and discussing the flavors of them but whether that will be a big market will ever return i don't know you've only got to look at your side on the beer market uh, the hundreds of small microbreweries that have a attractor a beer culture clientele but yeah. none of them are the size of sab none of them yeah i mean one thing what that I can remember when we visited Bulmers in Hereford is they, um, um, Chris Bond took us to one of those old uh, breweries where they still had cask beer. Um, yeah, I mean, there is a bit of a, a thing goes on in the UK. You have the Campaign for Real Ale camera. Mm. You probably know about them. Obviously, you're in that side of the market mainly as well. Um, camera pushed very hard, uh, particularly in the... 90s to push traditional cask beers um, 
little, it took quite a long time to get it going. Um, and let's be honest, there is one big problem with cask beers, and exactly the same thing happens with the cask ciders. The cask beers, you have to look after them. Mm-hmm. You have to keep the temperatures right. You can't just suddenly go, oh, I've run out, let's just stick another keg on. You've got to bring it up the night before you want to, to tap it. Otherwise, it's full of yeast. You know, the first one's out, you've got to let it settle. And the majority, and I'm probably going to get a lot of criticism for saying this, the majority of barmen these days are keg jockeys. Yeah. They're not, they don't know an awful lot about the product, and they don't need to know a lot about the product. They can open a bottle, and they can pour it out, and they can mix it with something. They don't have to look after the products. Now, with cask beers and cask ciders, um, you have to look after them. You've got to bring them in on your premises at least a week before you want them because you only add the, the, the last bit of the yeast at that point to get the, the fizz back into it. You've got to plan a lot better. You can't have 20 kegs sitting out the back just in case you have a party this weekend. If you have a party and they drink it all, it's run out. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think, I think those those sort of products are really um, exceptionally special, but, I mean, in, in today's environment where everything is just push-button and you want everything... Do we even st- still need these products? I, I mean, I, I certainly believe there's a market for it, but it's so much easier just to, to make a, a, a spirit cooler, like you say, and you've done that. I can remember you launching a spirit cooler. Um, Several, yeah. Yeah, and Zelensky, it's so much easier. <laughs> it is It is relatively easy. I mean, I, I do product development. I only ever did ciders up until the spirit coolers came on the market, started a little bit. And what's these funny things that they're doing? Okay, we better start learning a bit about this and started producing them. And I've done 40, 50, 60 different recipes around the world for spirit coolers. Um, But it is a sign of the times. Um, I mean, even that plant you referred to up in Centurion, um, 30 years beforehand, it would have had a staff of 50 to 60 staff. And we had six. You have SCADA. Um, I deliberately bought my house two and a half kilometers away from it because at three o'clock in the morning, nobody's there. My cell phone would start beeping at me and say, one of the valves is stuck somewhere. And I'd jump in the car and go down and reset it. I mean, it, it's computer controlled. The big problem is when things go wrong. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you may remember the Institute of Brewing did a, a, a big conference at Sun City some years ago. And I did a presentation there, or you can tell how long ago it was, um, the film uh, Back to the Future had just come out. Mm-hmm. And I did a presentation, I'm known for being a bit weird with some of my presentations, and uh, put on at the point where they need to get things lively again after some lecturers just talked for two hours on the micropore size of particular filters or something. Um, and I, the film had just come out, and I did a, a presentation to them, which I'd done to a small group in London, uh, called Forward to the Past. Um, and it was a bit contentious, particularly as I was being followed by the uh, professor of brewing from Harriet Watt, who at that point was sitting next to me. As you know, you sit at the front and you got one at a time. And Forward to the Past was something that I felt very strongly about. And I stood up, I don't know how many, there must have been 400 people in the brewing industry in that room. And I said to them, sit down. If you're the PA to somebody and you're just here for a job, and a few women sat down, sit down. If you're an engineer 
few more sat down. Right, have I just got brewers and people in the brewing side standing up right now? Sit down if you've never heard something that goes along, if, if, if you've ever heard something that goes along the lines of the following. Well, I just don't know what's going wrong. The lab results say it's all right, the temperatures are right, the pressures are right, everything is right, but this bloody fermentation isn't going right. And of course, about four or five people sat down, all the rest were shaking their heads going, yeah, we've had that problem. Now, the issue to me at that point was, you have to put in the technology. If you don't, someone else will, and you'll be out of business because you won't compete on price. It's as simple as that. But we've developed a generation in brewing, in winemaking, cider making, and lots of other industries, even in engineering and things, where we've developed a generation of highly skilled computer operators. So 90% of the people in brewing don't understand brewing. They know how to turn that computer on or switch this off or run program 76 instead of program 84. The problem is, and if you go back to the old days, when the old head brewer was about to retire, he'd call the next brewer up to his office and he'd have a great ceremony, he'd hand over a huge row of usually leather-bound books, which were all his notes and his predecessor's notes and his predecessor's notes of where things had gone wrong and how they'd put it right because they understood the biology of it. These days, when things go wrong, people go, I don't know why the computer hasn't got it right. But we're not dealing with a computer, we're dealing with living organisms. Fruit varies, the seasons vary, so the nutrients in the fruit vary. Something wasn't quite clean, a bit of bacteria's got into it, a bit of wild yeast, there's a different strain from your own yeast got into it, and they don't know because they can't press a button to put that right. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about HP Bulmer and uh, the consolidation of all the breweries in, in Europe? Was it, did Bulmer sell at the same time? Well, the Bulmer issue was a, a, um, a very serious issue for, are you talking about when Bulmer's was taken over? Yeah. It was a very, very sad day for nearly 1,500 people. Um, a new CEO had come into the company he declared to the stock exchange what huge rises was going to happen and um, there was a big slump. All breweries were saying, oh, we've done really well, we only went down 6% in turnover. He wasn't prepared to say the same thing because he declared to the stock exchange that he was going to rise, I think it was 22% that following year. And there was some manipulation happened within the books so that he would meet his target. And sadly, but quite correctly, the company secretary, who here you'd call in-house counsel, and in the UK is the only person that can go to jail in a business, and apart from theft from the business or whatever else, but the only person that carries any responsibility that can actually include jail time is the lawyer mm. in that business. He found out what happened. And the chairman, Esmond Bulmer, was a member of parliament, in fact, a cabinet minister. And he went roaring down to London to say, I found this out. I'm not going to jail. Either you go to the stock exchange with me now, or I'm going on my own, and I'm blowing this open. Now, they did. They went to the stock exchange, and they said there was an error in the, the way that the books had been presented. Um, 
I'm not going to give the exact details of it. I'll tell you them afterwards. <laughs> but um, the share price just slumped. And I mean, I mean, it really did slump. I mean, the Bulmer family were, I think at that point, the third wealthiest family in the United Kingdom, and they slipped to something like 85 in 48 hours. At that point, there was basically a dawn raid by Scottish and Newcastle yeah. to buy all as many of those shares as possible, which confused uh, a lot of us because nobody knew how Scottish and Newcastle could fund it because they didn't have that sort of money. But of course, then a few days later, there suddenly came the announcement that Heineken had bought Scottish and Newcastle. Part of the deal was we'll fund you to get this so that we can get it. Uh -huh. And that's what happened. And they, of course, um, said, we're going to stop canning, bottling, everything like that on site. Uh, we don't need the sales force because we've got our own. We don't need this. And out of the 1,500 people in Hereford, which, remember, is not a big, a big city, um, all but 380 of them were retrenched basically overnight, wow. including me. Uh, because they didn't need an international division anymore, and I was international division technical manager, <laughs> so they didn't need a need that anymore. Um, so I stayed here in South Africa. <laughs> huh. That's that's a sad. Along with Andy. <laughs> and did they then sell that South African business? Well, the some of the businesses were sold. Um, so there was uh, issues with Australia and New Zealand where businesses were sold with certain franchise type licenses um, but the South African business was ceased as a Bulmers issue um, and Bavaria took over um, the plan was that Bavaria would take over certain uh, aspects of that and keep certain products going and now Strongbow's I mean Strongbow and all those brands are marketed through Heineken yes yeah, because obviously they own own Bulmers, yeah. and so Strongbow became their flagship brand, obviously worldwide, because it was the biggest brand in the world by a, a huge, huge margin already. So the market goes on, and I say they they've changed the products, but I think they've, although not to my taste, they've changed the products to probably the current generation's requirements. Yeah. So the the Strongbow that we get in on our shelves here in South Africa is that still made at that original factory. No, 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 oh. no, no, no. The products are made here, in, here in South Africa. No, no. I mean, in in Centurion. I know a lot of it's made at the cider plant they built next to the brewery, oh. as an expansion next to the brewery, and then they top up with from the plant in Centurion. Okay, so that plant is still going. That plant is still going, and I uh, can't give too much details, mm. but uh, for the first time in my history, a plant that I project managed to build of and uh, the opening of was reopened again uh, two weeks ago um, and uh, is producing cider. Uh, part of the deal is they will produce their own cider but they will also provide the seasonal top-up because the Heineken plant doesn't have enough capacity. So again it's a little bit of a that we've got a plant that's oh, Heineken's got a plant that uh, sometimes the year is running flat out to keep it keep supplying the surplus the rest of the year they could supply it from the from the other factory so this allows it again better utilization for both companies and mm. it's a a nice partnership um and is tied in with a very credible be triple triple be 
um, company. Mm. So that can you talk a little bit about that b- new business, Ayetu, that has purchased that uh, that facility? Mdisu. Mdisu. Yeah, uh, it's a partnership with his businesses. Um, Mike Vizi, who became after the opening, he wasn't there at the time of the opening of the Bulma factory, but he became um, MD, uh, which was marketing yeah. director, and then became MD. And he uh, is CEO of a company called Iithu, uh, of which the family own the rest of. Uh, he, he owns a sizable shareholding in it. Uh, it's a triple B company, and. Uh, we were at the reopening again there two weeks ago with a very credible people, but uh, they didn't manage to get a prince there. They this managed, time, this they time without get, the prince. No, they didn't manage to get a prince there, I'm afraid. The best they could do was a uh, uh, couple of very, very senior politicians, but <laughs> they were very welcome there, to be there. Yeah. <laughs> John, it's, it's, it's been lovely. Thank you for all the lessons. I mean, Sada, to me, is something that I see even when we were selling it here, I, I, I didn't quite get to understand the taste and and everything but it's certainly an interesting conversation thanks for your time today you're welcome (laughs) cheers thank you for joining us today that was john murray who has now retired on the kzn south coast and he is still consulting with international clients and he says with dhl and skype everything is possible So wonderful stories there with John and wonderful memories, lots of stories that I'd already forgotten, especially those with Prince Philip. Thanks for joining us today and this podcast was brought to you by drinksbiz.net, a community for business owners and professionals in the beverage industry.